What if your family name was infamous? What if you were the only loyal American in a clan where everyone, even your sweet little old grandmother, backed treason? We'll meet just such a man in Union Blue next. Hello, history lovers, and welcome. You know me, I'm Dean Carianis, your host, and this is the History Author Show on iHeartRadio, now number one in podcasting. So thank you for playing a part in making that happen. In this episode, we welcome one of our very first guests back into the time machine. It's Jane B. Singer, who we last chatted with about her book, Lincoln's Secret Spy the Civil War case that changed the future of espionage. Jane joins us with her latest tale from that era, torn from the archives and brought to light for us today. The book is titled, The War Criminal's Son, The Civil War Saga of William A. Winder. It's the true story of Confederate General John H. Winder and the pressure he puts on his son, Union Captain William Andrew Winder. William A. Winder is such an inspiring figure. He doesn't let the weight of not just his father's legacy, but his grandfather's legacy at the infamous War of 1812 Battle of Bladensburg crush his spirit. His father, General John H. Winder, is referred to as the dictator of the capital of the Confederacy, and his camp has a name that's still dreaded today, Andersonville. Jane Singer is a Civil War scholar who, in addition to co-authoring Lincoln's Secret Spy, is also the author of The Confederate Dirty War, the basis of the History Channel special, Civil War Terror. You can find her at Jane B. Singer and the Digit One on Twitter, and you can find our previous interview in our archives at iHeartRadio on HistoryAuthor.com or wherever you're listening now. Okay, now that we've heard the grim news of the firing on Fort Sumter, Let's answer the call to arms with Jane B. Singer and meet the war criminal's son. I'm joined on the line by Jane B. Singer, author of The War Criminal's Son, The Civil War Saga of William A. Winder. Welcome back to the History Author Show, Jane. Thank you. It's a great pleasure to have you back because chronologically for this project, for the History Author Show, you were the first guest that I interviewed. And I remember listening to you speak and I remember smiling to myself and saying, this is going to be really nice. It's so great to be able to hear authors, to give them a forum, to be able to talk about their books and enjoy it. And so when I got your email here talking about the war criminal's son, I thought back to Lincoln's secret spy and I said, this is going to be a great journey. I get to ask the author right off what they've been up to for the past, is it three years now, I believe. So yes, yes. come right back into the Civil War. That's something that I always like. And with another figure that was lost, that you brought back, that you give us. And when an author finds new things about something is written about as the Civil War, I always have to start off with a compliment. That's really something I guess you have to work at. You have to look and find these guys and, and drag them out of there, drag, drag them out of the indexes and the bibliographies and bring them back. Yes. Well, I think, you know, for me, the discovery of William Andrew Winder was somewhat accidental in that I saw a portrait, frankly, on eBay, that portrait of a man with a patriarchal beard and a kind of inward-looking gaze who seemed troubled, and I thought, my goodness, what a compelling figure. And also, I noticed on the back, it said, William A. Winder, USA. And I thought, wait a second here, I've long studied the Civil War, and I well knew about the Winder family, the infamous Winder family, the Confederate Winder family, notably John H. Winder, the commandant of Libby, Belle Isle, and Andersonville prison. Who was this? Was this person a relation? So the who was this was really the beginning of a very, very long journey that 
for me, fulfilled my mission as both a scholar and an author and a researcher, and that is to find hitherto unknown men and women in the great big war whose stories either move me, excite me, in some cases repel me, but are worth the telling. So my coming upon this portrait was both serendipitous and I think a wonderful event. You talk about coming across his name and saying, oh, wait, is he related to these infamous winders that I know about? And I thought so compelling right off the bat, because even here we are 150 years later and people are still meeting him, so to speak, in the historical record and asking the same question that they would have asked at the time. Uh, for that reason, novelists try to give characters distinct names, even ones with different first letters. So you wouldn't have an Archie and Alan and an Adam in the same story, much less, say, two Smiths, and you had to say, oh, no relation, they're not related. Or if they were related, it's even more confusing for the reader. And that's the thing that we get in The War Criminal's Son. Just the title already defines him by his father. So here, William A. Winder is going through the war at the time as a contemporary there are so many other winders, Confederates all. It's a thing where you can imagine every time he introduced himself, people would say, oh, winder, I know you, you're the, you're one of the traitors, right? Are you related to that, you know, so-and-so down, down at the Confederacy? Think how high the passions ran during the Civil War. People are literally shooting at each other. There's a war going on. And this fellow carries that name and that letter with him the whole time, his whole life. And he sticks. And I just think that's so compelling. That's an amazing thing. I think another person would have simply changed their name, and yet he holds on to it. Yes, I think, well, I think the idea, the idea of reclamation of lost honor, I think William Andrew Winder was never, was never traitorous, was never disloyal. And yet, as you said, what he endured, uh, not just throughout the war, but because of the shame in the name well before the Civil War, which I'm assuming we'll talk about when we talk about grandfather William H. Winder. And you're absolutely right. There are so many winders with different initials. Some are named William. Some are named yeah. <laughs> that, you know, even for me at times, I had to, like, have little index cards and make sure that I had the right winder as I was writing about them. But there is... You know, there's a sense of William Andrew Winder's saga, and it truly is a saga because being born in 1823 and dying just after the turn of the century in 1903 and living through not just before the Civil War, but, but during the Civil War and well into a time when the name was still infamous. So, you know, the fact that he was able to, as you say, not change his name, or worse, uh, not just end it, because he was repeatedly ex uh, accused of disloyalty, and he was never disloyal. You mentioned about having to have index cards and keep those initials straight, and oh, yes. I thought of the challenge it must be in the research, because oftentimes I know when I go out and read an article about somebody, they'll get the middle initial wrong or get the spelling wrong, especially since his name is spelled W-I-N-D-E-R, yet it's pronounced not Winder, it's, pron it's pronounced Winder. And I thought of the challenge of you going in and, and researching and keeping it straight, and I thought an example in our time, when you would think people would know, is George H.W. Bush and George W. Bush. It's very easy for people to confuse them writing a column or writing a news story, especially now there's not many copy editors. It's they're the first people that have been fired as the Internet has gotten up and running and yeah, newspapers yeah. look to cut costs. And the people writing today may not have much of a memory of either Bush presidency. So when you're going into the research here so long ago in the middle of a war where you don't have those resources, I imagine that was a unique challenge to keep him straight and keep that A foremost because people probably put all kinds of initials in their names. Yes, yes. It was until it wasn't, quite frankly, because the good news for me as, in this case, a nonfiction writer is that the Winder family, particularly the two uncles who were imprisoned for treason in the Northeast, who were differentiated by their verbiage. 
So when I was able to discover that, for example, William Andrew Winder's uncle, rather, William H. Winder, wrote copious letters from prison, excoriating the Lincoln administration, calling the abolitionists criminals and abolitionism, you know, a stain on the world. I became familiar enough with them to know immediately who was speaking. It's like, oh my goodness, that's Uncle Bill talking here. That's Uncle Charlie. And I know it sounds silly, but they almost became, in a kind of perverse way, family members for me. You noticed the voices right away. That's interesting. I, they wrote so yes, much, I did. so you got it. <laughs> I guess so. Yes. If you know it was the guy who was insulting Lincoln, it wouldn't have been William A. Winder, <laughs> the guy that was tearing it apart. No, 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 no. As a matter of fact, William A. Winder, when he was sent to Washington, D.C. with his company M, sent from Alcatraz to the front, he really wanted to remain at the front, and this is an extraordinary piece of his story. He literally begged his superior officers to let him remain at the front and went to Abraham Lincoln and said, I am a loyal man. I wasn't there to hear the conversation, but I suspect it might have been something like, I know you're aware of the fact that my two uncles are in jail, one of them just a few blocks away. <laughs> But I am a loyal man, and I will remain loyal. So I prefer to remain at the front, and even if it means fighting my own family, I shall do so. That's something you write about in The War Criminal's Son. You write, quote, Although more than ready to fight the rebels, he will be forced to wage a very different kind of war. That's a moment that we talked about when we spoke of his name and his choosing to keep that name. But he has to pick a side, literally. He has to decide North or South. William A. Winder can choose a high rank, a place of honor in the South, a position of influence. His whole family is going to welcome him in there. Or he can choose this position where he has to literally go to Abraham Lincoln and convince him that he's loyal and to give him a job and give him a job that he might want. And the Northern Army is never going to fully trust him, it seems, as if that that's what he feels when he walks in there. He, he could, I guess, just go be a planter and sit this one out, but he chooses not to. So give listeners a taste of how he struggles with that choice as the war breaks out. I suspect it was not as much of a struggle as one might think, in that, according to William Andrew Winder, at the end of his life, he said something like, I'm probably paraphrasing him, I want to tell the world a story. There was never any question as to what side I was going to be on, even if it meant, and it did, sacrificing my blood relations. So I don't think he ever considered going south, even though um, when he was visited by John H. Winder's courier, posing as a Confederate courier who was in fact a Pinkerton agent, and gave William A. Winder a message from his father, essentially saying, if you can't come south, my son, desert or kill yourself. Ugh. You know, this was the order from a father to a son. And, of course, the son never stepped foot in the south. He never crossed the line, never intended to. The other important factor, I think, and it's not necessarily the, the primary motive for his remaining loyal to the Union, is that he was, first of all, a career army soldier, he was stationed in New Hampshire at Fort Constitution, where he met the daughter of the then or the soon-to-be governor of New Hampshire, Ichabod Goodwin, and he met Abigail, Abby Goodwin, and they got married in 1850. So by the time the war came, he was married to a passionate Lincoln supporter, Ichabod Goodwin, who may or may not have had supreme influence on his choice, because I, I want to make it clear that I don't believe William Andrew Winder ever, ever considered going south. Amazing. You know, there are factors here, but I, I don't want to make one factor supreme, so to speak. It's amazing that he never considered it. You would think that there might be a moment. And I think that's something that a book like The War Criminal's Son does for us that we need to hear, because we're naturally going to apply how we would feel in the situation. 
And I just did that myself. Well, you could go and become a planter. Maybe you could just sit this one out. But this is something that doesn't occur to him within this crucible of the war because he served all this time because of his in-laws, because he believes in what he's doing. And so I think that just as you're speaking there, it makes me realize why a book like this is important to pick up and read. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, I think, too, that he was the kind of man who, let's say this, he was very much, to repeat myself, his own man, even though, even though, he was the son of John H. Winder, who was, to be kind, a hard-handed martinet, to be unkind, a really rather despicable character. And I think the family business was army, was the army. I think John H. Winder made six attempts to get his son, William A. Winder, into West Point. Winder himself was a graduate of West Point. And these were written applications. And William A. Winder, the young William A. Winder, beginning at the age of, I think, 15, after six applications, never got into West Point, never even was able to sit down for an interview. So what happens then? I mean, he had choices at that point. But I think because the calling of the family, and this is probably one of the most important things that I write about and think about, is that there was already shame in the name. And the idea of bringing lost honor back to the family name was supreme. And how do you do that? In the Winder family, you do it by serving your country. So I don't know if it's time to go to the Battle of Bladensburg. Yeah, it actually is but. very much. I'm, I'm sitting here uh, with it on the tip of my tongue to mention it because as soon as I saw the Battle of Bladensburg mentioned in The War Criminal's Son, I perked up. And here's a story of the War of 1812 and this defeat and all of this being lumped not just on the grandfather, the man who they're looking back to from the Civil War is William A. Winder, but everybody, all the future generations, they're all tarred with this infamous rout by the British in the War of 1812. So yes, please go into that and talk about how that impacts the Civil War generation of Winders. Yes, I think, you know, again, shame in the name. On August 24th, 1814, William H. Winder, and here we go with confusions again, but, but I want to be very clear. Brigadier General William H. Winder, former lawyer, turned general, was in command of the American troops as the British were approaching and wishing to cross the Anacostia River to, in essence, capture Washington, D.C. William H. Winder failed to anticipate not just the size of the British force, but did not firmly entrench his lines. The British broke through, went to Washington, D.C., burned the White House, burned the Capitol, wreaked extraordinary havoc, forcing the President of the United States to flee for his life. And ultimately, by January of 1815, this dreadful route became known as the Bladensburg races, because what happened as the British began to overrun the American troops, the Americans threw down their weapons and fled, literally fled. So it became known as the Bladensburg races. And that stain and the description of General William H. Winder, the grandfather of William A. Winder, the father of John H. Winder, he came to be known as one of the worst leaders in history. So already you have probably a really proud landed Maryland family with a governor, judges, lawyers, a patrician family looking to redeem the name. So that's not just a heavy burden for William A. Winder, but for John H. Winder, for his brothers, William H. Winder, <laughs> the namesake of the general, yeah, wow. Charles H. Winder. Yeah. So, you know, there's sort of this heavy, I almost see it as a great heavy backpack full of rocks that these people are trudging with until they step on the war stage. And here's a chance on both sides, fairly speaking, to redeem the name. 
We have the Mexican War in there, the Mexican-American War. Any of them able to serve in that? I don't recall that from the book. But yes. it seems like they would be chomping at the bit to get out there and fight in something and, and redeem the name, as you say. Well, yes, John H. Winder served in the Mexican War. However, he famously had executed a young group of Mexican cadets, and it was called, I think, the Massacre of Los Niños. So forgive my ineptitude about the pronunciation. He served in the Mexican War. I don't want to judge too completely. Was he brave? Was he cruel? I think he was both. His son, however, William A. Winder, who, remember, could not get into West Point to save his life, decided to try to do something for the Mexican War effort. And he, as I described, kind of slipped sideways into the Mexican War. He went to Point Isabel, and volunteered to be a civilian paymaster, which was kind of amazing in that this is a boy, this is a young man, who first and foremost wanted to be a doctor. That was his lifelong dream. And I suspect that John H. Winder said, "Uh uh-uh, no doctors here. No, 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 no. We're going to be soldiers. So when William A. Winder was his position as a civilian paymaster, assistant, by the way, not just a fully ranked paymaster, he performed what appeared to be, and the record is kind of scanty, an amorphous act of bravery at the Battle of Buena Vista. And according to various accounts of said battle, he was stationed or hanging out with a group of Teamsters, American Teamsters, who were from various walks of life, but probably pretty ham-fisted guys who were willing to fight, but they weren't in uniform, and neither was William A. Winder. And here comes a group of Mexican troops, a small detachment, approaching their location. And allegedly, according to various sources, William A. Winder organized this rather ragtag bunch of civilians, led them with apparently pitchforks, and I'm not sure how many guns were involved, but screaming and yelling, and repelled this oncoming detachment. Hmm. Yeah, <laughs> and that sounds pretty typical in a way for that war, a tiny little American force, and here we go. It sounds like a very typical battle of that war in a way. I think so. I think so. But what's interesting about it is that shortly after that, he was appointed, he was given a second lieutenancy for this, as I say, rather amorphous act of bravery. But the record is clear. This is what happened to him. This was his award. And that began, that second lieutenancy began, I suspect, a kind of ducking and wincing army career, so to speak. I don't think it was ever his passion or his dream, but he was a good soldier. It was his duty. Yeah. He could never just walk his own path. I think that's something that we can all relate to. And as I said about the title, The War Criminal's Son, it tells you that here's somebody who's being defined. In fact, that reminds me of the book about Theodore Roosevelt Jr., his father's son. Same title and same legacy in a very different way by author Tim Brady telling the story of somebody who is in his father's shadow, but certainly Theodore Roosevelt, the president, was not infamous, but putting so much pressure on the son and the son forever being in that shadow. I thought when I saw the cover of the book, that's something that he struggles with here. And you you have so much on you. Lincoln's son was the same way. He said people were forever trying to get him to run for office. And he said they didn't they didn't really want me. They wanted my father and wanted me to be him. And that's that's another Robert Lincoln, another really interesting father-son relationship to come out of the war. Here you have a father who is known as the formidable dictator of the capital of the Confederate States. The guy has a lot of pressure on him right there. How would you like to introduce yourself to somebody and say, oh, right, your father is that dictator of the capital of the people that are trying to tear the country apart? There must have been a million little things like that that are lost to the historical record. I'm sure people wouldn't even shake his hand, wouldn't want to eat with him, that sort of thing. John H. Winder goes on to run what becomes a death factory for Union POWs at Andersonville Prison, though it's not designed to be a death factory specifically. I guess it's what happens. It's how people associate that infamous name today. 
Now, ever since we fought Nazi Germany, people have always reached conveniently and very glibly for Hitler analogies. They like to just grab that off the shelf. And I always feel as if if everybody is Hitler, then nobody is Hitler. And what he did wasn't particularly a unique historical evil, which obviously it was, or it should be obvious. I guess it's not. So I wanted to ask you that. I'm sure it's a question that you get a lot and something that only you really can answer here about William A. Winder and about his infamous father, John H. Winder. What did they do? And what do you feel when you hear somebody shorthand maybe his crimes into saying, oh, okay, he was like Hitler. Now we're going we're gonna to move on to the next person that we call Hitler. I think it's a very important question, Dean. And I think, in my opinion, there is no comparison between John H. Winder and Adolf Hitler. I think it, you know, it's, it's not just a reach, but it's kind of an arrogant reach, in my opinion. John Henry Winder, General John Winder of Andersonville Infamy, was a functionary. He was not the leader of a nation, nor was Andersonville, the crimes of Andersonville, the crimes of Libby, the crimes of Belle Isle, genocidal in nature. One can argue that when John H. Winder's son, William Sidney Winder, was ordered to find the ground for a new prison, and he did in fact find what was called at the time Anderson Station, which became the infamous Andersonville prison, he ordered all the trees cut down because allegedly, he said, and this is allegedly, I want all the Yankees to just burn in the sun. So I think we have here a situation where Union POWs, the enemy of the Confederates, obviously, were imprisoned in the most grotesque kinds of conditions. And so was it purposeful extermination, there were a number of factors. Number one was nobody anticipated the amount of prisoners that would be sent both from Richmond and ultimately other places of capture, for example, Florida, to this place called Andersonville. It was originally the stockade was built for 10,000 prisoners. By the infamous summer of 1864, it held 34,000 prisoners, 13,000 of whom, close to 14,000, eventually perished. So you have a camp which is shadeless. These poor prisoners of war are forced to find, either burrow into the ground, build what they called shebangs, which were pieces of ragged cloth or whatever they could grab, on sticks to provide shade or shelter from the rains, which were frequent. And you had a peculiar construct. You had the top looking over the stockade were the kitchens, portions of the hospital. You had waste material running down into the stockade through a stream. At the base of the stream is where the soldiers bathed drank and contracted dysentery, which ultimately, you know, I think dysentery was the chief killer of those prisoners of war. So the very construct itself was impending doom from the beginning. And as you're speaking, I'm thinking this is in a time before not only before there are treaties between nations about the treatment of POWs, it wouldn't have been possible anyway, as the Union wouldn't even accept representatives from the Confederate States because they didn't recognize it as its own nation. This is something that I discussed with Neil Bascom when we talked about the escape artists and these prisoners of war in World War One. By then, that's 1917, 18, where we're starting to think about the treatment of POWs on both sides, have the Red Cross really involved with packages and things like that. That wasn't possible or thought about at this point. This is, is new. So something I think about just there when I'm thinking about what happens at Andersonville, I find often people will say, even about something they do, well, I'm sorry about what happened when it's something that they did. You know, They did something actively. It wasn't just, oh, it just dropped down from the sky. And this seems like a case where a lot of it was things that did happen that were the result of the climate, the result of things that one action someone did, and then suddenly we're having thousands and thousands more than we ever expected. For instance, you said that. That sounds like a very tough, inspiring 
Civil War quote to a twisted bent to say, well, let them burn out there. But the practical implications and the way that it, the overcrowding impacts all these men. The amazing thing, though, about that is that here William A. Winder ends up in Alcatraz, not as an inmate, but here they give him a chance to set up his own POW camp for Confederate POWs. And then he finds himself chosen, sent out there to San Francisco, which is a front of the war we never even think of. So how does he find himself? How does the Lincoln war machine decide we're going to choose our winder to set up a POW camp? Well, I think just to clarify, Alcatraz, first of all, William Andrew Winder well knew California. He was initially stationed near San Diego in at the Mission de Alcala in 1856, that's when he first arrived in California, as a member of the 3rd U.S. Artillery. So he knew California. He also was obviously a winder. Secretary of War Stanton allegedly did not trust any winder because here were two of William A. Winder's uncles imprisoned in the Northeast. So the name had already, by September of 1861, which is, you know, not that long into the war, here you have two of William A. Winder's uncles being imprisoned in the Northeast. So there was, in my opinion, a concern about allowing anyone named Winder to remain at the front, much as William Andrew Winder wanted to be at the front. So why was he sent to Alcatraz? Well, as a researcher relying almost exclusively on primary source documentation and wanting to have at least two to three sources to substantiate what I write about, because I'm sort of hidebound to not speculate if possible, I think what happened was Secretary of War Stanton did not trust a winder remaining in the East. So what do you do with this guy? He's been promoted to captain, of all things. You have to give him some kind of a command. So I suspect if I were a fly on the wall, there may have been a discussion that went something like this. All right, his family are traitors. He doesn't appear to be. He's gone to our beloved president and said, President Lincoln, I am not like the other winders. Please let me remain at the front. Well, perhaps said Secretary Stanton, I'm not comfortable with that. What about you, General McClellan? And McClellan might have said, heck no, <laughs> heck no. So off they send him to Alcatraz, which was misunderstood in that it was a very important post. Alcatraz was the guardian of the Bay of San Francisco. At the time in early 1862 when William Andrew Winder arrived there, as the commander of Company D at Alcatraz, Alcatraz was critical to the defense of not only the Golden Gate, but of San Francisco itself. And the reason was gold. Much of the gold rush wealth and riches and gold stores were housed in the mint in San Francisco. So if, for example... Either there was a Confederate invasion, which was feared, of the Golden Gate, ultimately reaching the city of San Francisco, commandeering the gold stores, refunding the Confederate war effort. That would have been an absolute disaster. Secondly, early in the war, it was not a certainty that the British were on the Union side. As a matter of fact, many were sympathetic to the Confederacy. So a British invasion was feared as well. And the other interesting thing is California was essentially a divided state during the Civil War. Not surprisingly, Northern California, meaning the San Francisco area and well above, sided with the Union. There's the famous Union Square in San Francisco, which is a fabulously interesting place to see because that's where rallies were held for the Union. Southern California, where many people came after the gold rush who were originally from the South thought, okay, where am I going to go in California? Southern California, the South, a more languid way of life, perhaps more gentlemanly, rightly or wrongly. So there was division in this state. And Alcatraz was of critical importance. 
and the city needed to be protected against all of these threats that I think I picture them almost imagining up, which is part of the job. It's not paranoia. You are in the middle of a war. And there's a couple of incidents there. For instance, the British ship that comes in and the battery fires on him. They have to check him out for that. Another time he allows people to take photos and they think, well, is he is he having these taken? Is he revealing important secrets? There was just recently the case of a young seaman who allowed in his nuclear submarine, or he didn't allow as Winder did, but he took pictures just of the engine room to send to his mother. And he was tried for that because that was secret material. He shouldn't have been, you're not allowed to take that picture of it. Not not the case here, but that's an interesting well, thing. Well, no, it, it, just to interrupt briefly, it might well have been the case because William A. Winder... <laughs> I feel for him. I'm I'm not chuckling at him. I'm sort of laughing sympathetically or having a moment here because the entire time he was at Alcatraz, and yes, you're absolutely right, Confederate sympathizers, virulent secessionists, were confined at Alcatraz, often in solitary confinement, but it was not a prisoner of war camp. It was much more tepid than that. However, however, the entire time he was there, Pretty much every move he made was seen as potentially treasonous. For example, when you mention the British ship, the HMS Sutledge, this mysterious, huge vessel that came steaming into the bay, and Winder and his men were obviously curious as heck to know who this was. It was a windless early morning, and the flag, which would have displayed the colors of this ship, were not evident. There was no breeze. All they saw was this huge thing steaming toward not just Alcatraz, but in the direction of Benicia, which was the arsenal where all the weaponry was stored, or much of the weaponry was stored. So what does Winder do? He fires a warning shot over the bow, which was a big deal, of this ship. And the ship still doesn't stop. So what does he do again? He fires another shot. Finally, finally, (laughs) the colors of the British ship are spotted, and it is a British ship indeed. And they actually have the audacity to also have an American flag flying around on the ship. And the British admiral, Admiral John Kingcombe, is furious, even though he orders a 21-gun salute, which is, you know, the mark of civility, returned in the direction of Alcatraz, it nearly started a major international incident. Now, think about it. Think about it. This is a British ship. They're not invaders, but William Andrew Winder didn't know that, did he? (laughs) Nor did his men. More importantly, in the bay, foolishly, There was only one what they called a revenue cutter ship, which would be the equivalent of our Coast Guard. Only one. And they were coming to the aid of a a Russian ship. The Russians were our allies then. Let's not forget that. So there wasn't a coast patrol going on there. And this decision was in the hands of William A. Winder. So he had to defend his actions repeatedly, repeatedly. Secondly, or thirdly, He, out of pride of place, ordered photographs taken of the entire island of Alcatraz. Every cannon, every emplacement, every weapon. And it was authorized by one of the chief engineers, one Delafield, at Alcatraz. But unfortunately, when this became public and he... William A. Winder hired a firm called Bradley Rulofsen to take these photographs, and we're going to charge the public money for the photographs. The War Department, i.e. Edwin Stanton, heard about it and literally flew into a rage. I could almost feel the heat rising as I speak. And Stanton ordered the photos suppressed and confiscated. This was a big deal. William Andrew Winder, again, had to defend the reason he had these photos taken. So, you know, it was sort of, if you think about being pelted by hail on a regular basis for three years, 
the hail being accusations, what people perceived as error, which was an error at all. Winder, William Andrew Winder had approval for these photos to be taken. But I think the minute Stanton heard that a Winder had ordered it, this was not a good thing. And yet, and yet, at no point, even though the newspapers printed, the California newspapers said that William Andrew Winder was under a ban of suspicion. Now, that's serious stuff. I had to spend a lot of time figuring out what the heck it meant. But what it meant was he was suspected of being disloyal. Now, he was never tried. He was Charges were never brought. And more remarkably, his superior officers constantly came to his defense, meaning General Wright, the commander of the Department of the Pacific, said, no, 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 this guy is not disloyal. But, but, the stain was there, the stigma was there, and I just keep thinking this must have been a perpetual, to use my metaphor again, hailstorm for this poor man. But he persisted, he survived, and that to me is what made his story so extraordinary. And then one other thing that happened at Alcatraz, which was no small thing, while this photograph scandal was going on, one of William A. Winder's men, a private, killed another private. And the private that killed the other private was schizophrenic, was hearing voices, and claimed, the private's name was Simon Kennedy, And he went to his commanding officer, meaning William A. Winder, and said, okay, this entire troop is going to kill me. They're going to kill me. They're going to hang me. you got to help me. So for his own protection, William A. Winder, who seemed very sympathetic to this young man's ravings, confined him to the guardhouse. At that point, Winder was at Point San Jose, which was just on the land side across the water. And that was, in a sense, a demotion. But the murder occurred at the guardhouse at Point San Jose. And William A. Winder, in the middle of this photograph scandal, was asked to defend by this young, poor schizophrenic man. He said, would you defend me in my court-martial? So the young man was tried for murder. William Andrew Winder mounted, and we have his words, thank goodness, one of my prize acquisitions, was the exact wording of this court-martial. William Winder defended this young man and mounted the most prescient defense of insanity. I had no idea how he would have known about this, how he would have recognized that this was not a premeditated act because the object of the military tribunal and the judge advocate was to hang this kid. William Andrew Winder's defense carried the day because what he basically said is, He was not responsible for his actions. That was a big deal. The kid's life was spared. He was sent to the Stockton State Hospital, which was the pretty much the only mental hospital for various, not just what they called lunatics, but women who were disobeying their husbands or children that were stealing. It was a huge facility. And this is where Simon Kennedy was sent as opposed to being hanged. And it was William Andrew Winder's amazing defense. And I'm hoping that when folks read my book, that they might, in fact, because I quote from the trial, I quote Winder's, in his words, his defense, I kind of hope they go and they get that trial from the National Archives, because it's unforgettable. It's unforgettable documentation. And it was true. So in the middle of everything else that was going on for him, here he is defending this poor mad young man. I mean, I I have such admiration for him. It comes across, and I hope it's coming across to listeners. You're enjoying my conversation with Jane B. Singer. Her book is The War Criminal's Son, The Civil War Saga of William A. Winder. You can find her at J.B. Singer and the digit one on Twitter. Frank J. Williams, founding chair of the Lincoln Forum and president of the Ulysses S. Grant Association and Presidential Library, says of your book, quote, A movie mogul once opined that there are thousands of stories from the Civil War that are worthy of a book or a movie. 
Jane Singer identifies one in the war criminal's son. Jane, this story really does have a cinematic scope, and I'm enjoying listening to you talk about it just as much as I did reading the war criminal's son and getting into it with him. Here's a person that it would be very easy to just go through my time reading it feeling pity for, feeling sorry for. Here the best he can hope for, as you mentioned, was someone saying, well, we suspect he's disloyal because of his family, but he doesn't appear to be. And imagine, that's not he isn't, that's just he doesn't appear to be. That's the best this guy could hope for from almost everybody on the Union side. There's a lot of research you talked about digging through there that you had at your fingertips. I'm thinking of Benedict Arnold, who had such thin skin, somebody who wouldn't have been able to deal with all of these slights. There's all of those stories in the book. One of them, though, that I mentioned in my introduction, I thought, really jumps out at us as readers, and that's that... Here's William A. Winder's 84-year-old grandmother, Gertrude. You figure your grandmother, you, you want that to be the ideal person. We all imagine somebody that's sitting there, that's baking us cookies, that loves us, never forgets our birthday. Who doesn't count on their granny if they're fortunate enough to have one living with them? And yet, even she, he cannot count on. Even she is on the other side of this Mason-Dixon line that runs through their family, with him lonely on one side. What is her fate in the war, and what impact does that have on her grandson? I think one of the things that was extremely both disturbing and impacted me, uh, both as a researcher and as a writer, is that every single member of William A. Winder's blood kin were Confederates, all, not just sympathizers, but warriors. In the case of Grandmother Gertrude, remember Gertrude is the widow of William H. Winder of the Bladensburg races, Depical. And talk about when the war broke out and Grandmother Gertrude was living in Baltimore, was not only an avid secessionist, but a vocal secessionist. So at the age of 84, Grandmother Gertrude is arrested in Baltimore, as the newspapers quoted, because of her extreme old age. And let's face it, back then, 84 was pretty remarkable. She was only jailed overnight, but she was vehement about not only the support of her Confederate sons, her sons, but her relations all, her cousins in the war, Oh, and her ultimate fate you had asked about. She died at the age of 90 in 1872. I suspect unrepentant, as were all of the male winders, with the exception of William A. Winder. The male winders never stopped trying to redeem not just the family name, but John H. Winder's name. And, you know, in a way it's kind of tragic because they never did. The name still, in some ways, sends shivers up even modern spines. So when we talk about William A. Winder's grandmother and the effect it might have had on him, remembering that newspapers loved this kind of story. So not only was Gertrude Winder's temporary imprisonment carried in the newspapers, but John H. Winder, the excoriations of John H. Winder, not just after he died, but during the entire Andersonville trial, were so vocal and so powerful and so, I don't know, I don't know how William A. Winder withstood all of that, but somehow he did. When John H. Winder died, suddenly, before the war ended, about two months before the war ended, he was posthumously indicted for war crimes. And his name, the name of John H. Winder, he was compared to the devil. They said the noose would have been too good for him. And these are things that his son could not help but not only read but hear. So how do you survive that? How do you weather that? I know how some of the family weathered it. About five years ago, I found finally a living descendant 
of John Coxwinder, who was William A. Winder's half-brother. And I called this gentleman, and I introduced myself. I said, I am writing a book about William A. Winder, John H. Winder's firstborn son. And this gentleman said, who? I said, oh, I'm sorry, sir. Um, William A. Winder, John H. Winder's firstborn son. And there was a very long pause. And he said, I never knew that child existed. So William Andrew Winder was literally erased from the family tree. And this was just a few years ago. So I think when I write about and when I wrote about this extraordinary man and his saga, because I want to remind my readers and you and at some level myself that William Andrew Winder's saga did not end with the Civil War. He went on to live a very, very full and productive life in San Diego, which I think was an exile for him because he was familiar with San Diego, but it also was just about as far away from the memory and the relations and the probably still raising excoriations of his family as he could get. But in San Diego, not only did he reclaim himself, reinvent himself, rejuvenate, he became one of the most beloved physicians in the area. So he fulfilled his lifelong mission to become a healer. So even if he couldn't save these poor POWs that literally rotted on the ground at Andersonville Prison, he could save one patient at a time in San Diego. And he was known to be preternaturally humane. He would go through wind and rain and see patients for free, um, even as he was getting older, because he wasn't a kid by the time he got to San Diego. And then the saga continues, because his actual true job from the United States government long after the Civil War was as an Indian allotting agent, at first at Covelo at the Round Valley Reservation in Northern California, and subsequently and ultimately for eight years at the Rosebud Indian Reservation, where he endured. I don't know if, uh, at least I didn't know much about what happened to, for example, the Indians in South Dakota the Lakota Sioux, the Brule Sioux, as they were known. In 1884, I believe it was 1884, there was something called the Dawes Act, which determined that certain Indian tribes should be located, relocated, in some cases moved, forced to move to various reservations. Such was the case of the Lakota Sioux, specifically the Brule or Sikanju Sioux, And folks like William A. Winder were sent to these reservations to allot land to the Native Americans. Sounds nice at the surface, and the government believed it was the right thing to do at the time. But what we're talking about here are saying to, let's say, um, a proud former warrior saying, all right, sir, you're going to now be farming the land over there across this field. And the former warrior might say, well, no, no, I'm, I want to be near my family. The land down there, things are not going to grow down there. These were mandates by the United States government. And in the guise of trying to, quote, unquote, civilize the Native Americans, who were once obviously warriors, this was what they felt to be both benevolent and helpful. William Andrew Winder was sympathetic to the plight of Native Americans from the time he arrived in California in 1856. He was indignant at the treatment of what they called the Mission Indians, the Kumaye Indians, who were being basically not just hurt by white settlers, but the white settlers were stealing their cattle. They were making their lives impossible and brutalizing them. And William Andrew Winder had the nerve, had the gall, and I say that complimentarily, to write to his commanding officers, rather than kill these Indians, how about feeding them? So William Andrew Winder goes to both Covelo, Round Valley, and Rosebud 
already immensely sympathetic to the plight of Native Americans. So you don't have a cruel person here mandating and allotting land, even though, even though, when I interviewed a gentleman called Russell Eagle Bear, who was the public affairs outreach educator at the Rosebud Reservation, and I explained what I was writing about, and he said, we were warriors, not farmers. This was never our intention. But he also said there were two kinds of Native Americans who were in and around the reservation. He called them the progressives and the originalists. And the progressives wanted to be progressive and do what the white man intended and not create immense rebellion. The originalists wanted nothing to do with the white man. So here again, we have William Andrew Winder in the middle of this vast, vast reservation. Wind, rain, unspeakable fires. And he's enduring. I think he was struggling, but he was doing his job for eight years. And the only thing that stopped him was illness. I won't give away the details of his lengthy and agonizing illness, but um, he was amazing. So he is not to be pitied, in my opinion. He's to be admired, even though there were areas where it seemed that he was, you know, sort of under the gun, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. But to me, he was inspiring, inspiring. No matter what side of the war I might have been on, I might have taken a deep breath even back in the day and said, wow, this guy just didn't give up, didn't give up. And he's admired by me for that reason. You mentioned about the division, and it reminded me of yet another book. I love to have read all these books and been fortunate to interview the authors. The book is Blood Moon, and it's about the Cherokee Nation being split between very similar factions. The interview is with John Sedgwick. That comes up again and again here, this idea of the division that I don't think as much as people like to speak about it, that we can relate to. And how great to be able to pick out an inspiring character like this who seeks to redeem his name. You mentioned when we were speaking in the run-up to the interview that Shakespeare's line, what's in a name, was something that played again and again in your head. And you also mentioned something that's topical and that there's a plaque honoring General John H. Winder on the grounds of the county courthouse in Salisbury, Maryland, Now, if we're going to remember the man for anything, especially after reading The War Criminal's Son, it seems obvious that it would be about this cruelty, about being indicted as a war criminal. Although he didn't live to see trial, it seems very likely he would have been convicted. We we have the evidence even today to make that case should we wish to try him posthumously. In a time when people are reevaluating historical markers and statues, especially from the Civil War period, Tell us briefly how you feel about that plaque being there. And if maybe, as is always my thought, I'd like to get in a second plaque, maybe use some of these opportunities to teach more history, not to remove what's there and erase somebody like this. I would like to see a second plaque, perhaps. But tell me what you think. I basically agree with you. I think what got my attention, frankly, was that the mayor of Salisbury, Maryland, Mayor Jacob Day, and some of his associates were going to make a documentary film about this plaque. This was controversial from the moment a petition was started. The plaque has been sitting there for a very long time, but it's a very benign description. It just details John H. Winder's war service and then says he was the head of Confederate prisons. I mean, something as sort of abbreviated as that, giving no indication of what he was basically renowned for or infamous for. However, like so much of what happened around 2017, meaning the tragic events at Charlottesville, the fight over whether or not to remove monuments, remove Confederate flags, this event in Salisbury was so compelling to me, not just because they reached out to me because they learned I was writing about the winders, but because here you have an event in Maryland. Now, remembering that Maryland was essentially forced to remain in the Union because had Maryland gone to the Confederacy, as did Virginia, 
there would have been an inevitable invasion of Washington, D.C., and the war would have been over probably in 15 minutes. So here we have this event occurring in Maryland. And what happened was, when all of these controversies began, the plaque and the reminder of the plaque was not only the object of a petition, the subject of a petition, but it became not just argumentative, but boisterous. The petitioners failed to have the plaque removed. The Salisbury Town Council voted to keep it where it was. However, two critically important events occurred within feet of that plaque, one of which was a speech by the noted orator and great abolitionist and former slave Frederick Douglass, who spoke in the courthouse in 1884, uncommemorated to this, at least at this point. I haven't spoken to anybody in Salisbury for a couple of weeks, but I don't believe there is yet a memorial to that. And second, and perhaps most shockingly, in 1914, a young African-American man was lynched in front of the courthouse, again, just steps from the winder marker. And African-Americans were watching. A white mob dragged this man out of the jail and lynched him to great hoots and I'm sure, uh, screams of joy and, and whatnot. So these are two or three things, actually, we have going on here. We have the Winder plaque, and we have this sort of almost haunting of the lynching in the Jim Crow era. And then you have Frederick Douglass, who is speaking in the courthouse. And my hope is that not only is there an adjunctive plaque to the John Winder plaque, listing and you know without excoriation perhaps to being relatively objective that john h winder was not only the head of andersonville prison the commandant responsible for the crimes at andersonville but also of richmond the confederate capital libby prison belle isle prison these are these are just facts and sometimes kind of naked facts give us chills more than actually trying to opine about said facts. So, yes, and should the Frederick Douglass speech be commemorated? In my opinion, absolutely. I hope it's going to happen. There's a group of people now who are attempting to get that done. And should certainly the site of the lynching, there should be some sort of evidentiary notice there. I mean, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking as I'm talking about it that this is possible to get done. I was fortunate to be asked by the Garfield Museum, the library, President Garfield in Mentor, Ohio, to participate with Candace Millard, Louis Pacone, and others to commemorate this spot where President Garfield was shot because there was no marking. Really? Really? This in, yeah, this seems incredible, right? A U.S. president gunned down in the nation's capital. It's not as there if was nothing, nothing no. to mark it? No. Oh, what an interesting opportunity <laughs> for you, though, Dean. Yeah, and now there are some waysides there. We worked on it. We had a bunch of conference calls. We worked with the National Park Service and got that done. You can get it done, and I think it's always good to have more plaques, more things people can stop and look at. And that Frederick Douglass speech, it sounds as if, okay, the person spoke there that was famous, maybe, is how it sounds to people. This wasn't just fame for fame's sake, which we have a lot of today, not just from social media, but because we have stars in a way we didn't have them. We have entertainment stars. So he was not just a famous person. This is significant. Anytime he went and spoke anywhere, yes. it was a significant historical event it was. just in being allowed to speak places. Right. So let's remind people of that with a plaque and let them let them see it and know what happened there. Absolutely. And and hopefully, you know, they will. I think the difference, though, for me is that the controversy, the, the notion of slavery, the idea that here is this state of Maryland that remembering the anthem, the tyrant's heel is on thy shore, Maryland, my Maryland. Well, the tyrant clearly was Abraham Lincoln. So when you think of a war within a war, I think for me, Salisbury became perhaps more important than it might have been to somebody else because I grew up in Virginia, in Falls Church in Arlington, Virginia, well aware of 
you know, so much of the Virginia pride, the pride of place, the state of the presidents, the state of Robert E. Lee, and looking over to Maryland, thinking, gosh, you know, they were they were really on the other side, but they really weren't. That's the thing. The sentiment was very different than than as I grew up and started to come to my senses about things, realizing how still conflicted Maryland was. And so Salisbury becomes important to me in that regard. That is a song that Robert E. Lee has his army play when they invade Maryland on their way to Gettysburg. And that fateful mm-hmm. encounter is Maryland, my Maryland, hoping to drag them over. So mm-hmm. there are so many things like that that we could speak about. As you could tell, we're both passionate about your book. Yes. We, we both really, <laughs> really enjoyed The War Criminal's Son. That email that you sent me, I was so happy to get it, knowing I would meet another person that had been plucked out of history. I couldn't have anticipated that it would have been William A. Winder and this story of his being torn of what's in a name of being a kind-hearted man a man who follows his own dreams when his own father tells him either fight for my side or take your own life what kind of a message (laughs) is that to get i don't think any of us can imagine as you said not laughing at him but just as the situation he finds himself in i really enjoyed the war criminal's son as i'm sure listeners can hear in my voice I wish you the best of luck with the book. I hope you'll keep in touch about this idea of amending the historical record with some plaques down there. I'm certainly on board now, having heard those two stories. I hope readers will pick up the book. I hope that they will help to redeem certainly the name of William A. Winder, that we might remember him as a good figure in history and see what one person can do and that your family, your name, we can answer that question a little bit for William A. Winder. There's there's nothing in his name that's dishonor. He, he stands alone, and that's a wonderful story to read. Thank you. Thank you, Dean. Again, the book is The War Criminal's Son, The Civil War Saga of William A. Winder. As always, you can find the Amazon link to purchase your copy at historyauthor.com. By buying the book through historyauthor.com, you help us keep the flux capacitor on our time machine humming like usual. I have a huge boatload of thanks for Jane B. Singer for joining us and for boiling the sweeping scope of the Civil War down to the relationship between a father and son on opposite sides of the conflict. William A. Winder is awe- William A. Winder's resilience is really awe-inspiring. He's a survivor. He reclaims that sense of self that his father tried to obliterate. It really makes me, as a reader, want to be a better person, to turn even the most negative of experiences, even being cast out by your entire family, into something positive. You can find our guest online at Jane B. Singer and the Digit One on Twitter, and you can find me at History Dean or find the History Author Show on Instagram and Facebook. That's it for this installment of the History Author Show. I hope you'll join us for our next all-new interview right here on iHeartRadio. And if you're an iTunes subscriber, please take a minute to leave us a review. Well, Until our next trip into the past together, thanks so much for time traveling with us today, and have a great week. We still call it Broadway, but what's in a name? Take it from Georgie, it isn't the same. On the east side, west side, things ain't like before. There are tears in the eyes of the regular guys. Oh, New York ain't New York anymore.